heavily on your work and your articles. Um, so you will definitely see your work reflected as well here, especially if you're interested in, in the final paper, which I can send to the host then for distribution. Um, the original paper is much more philosophical in nature as well, but I had to drastically reduce it. So I will only, um, I will only engage with a general introduction. So Roland Peary will definitely find some of this work in there. Um, and then I will engage with uh, the ECHR, the human rights perspectives, from a positive legal viewpoint, and especially this, this, um, this very important judgment that the Strasbourg court issued earlier this year in April, the so-called Vrabrichka uh, case, Vrabrichka and others versus the Czech Republic. So by way of introduction, uh, let me start with the objective scientific fact that the introduction of vaccines has been overall beneficial to human health. And since the development of the first vaccine back in the 18th century by Edward Jenner, infectious diseases as the major cause of deaths have been dramatically reduced on a global scale. The principal purpose of vaccination programs is attaining and maintaining herd immunity, which means that once a critical portion of the populace has been vaccinated and immunized against a contagious disease, the virus can no longer circulate and gain a foothold. And exactly for this reason, mass vaccination is much more effective than individual vaccination. Of course, we have to start on an individual level, but it only becomes effective once a larger part of the populace has been vaccinated. Because that provides a higher order collective protection, it nips the outbreak of infectious diseases in the bud and makes the full eradication, if that is, if that is planned, of such diseases possible and thereby protects the vaccinated and the unvaccinated alike, and especially if the latter category of persons cannot be vaccinated for medical reasons. But of course, besides being effective, vaccines must also be safe because a medical treatment that causes more harm than good will be rejected and will turn out to be useless. But my overall premise of this paper and my presentation is that science has shown that vaccines are generally safe Although, of course, in very rare cases, side effects can never be fully excluded, but they are very rare. All my following arguments are therefore based on this scientific consensus that vaccinations are both effective and safe. And also something I have to clarify that the analysis presented here applies to all vaccines that have been scientifically proven to pose no major health risk which also means that I address vaccines in general here and not any specific vaccine. I will also not engage with the current uh, pandemic, even though that might be obvious, but I think that would just go beyond the time scope here. So we can try perhaps in a discussion to apply the findings to COVID-19. But as we know, not everyone, and especially when it comes to child uh, vaccinations, children's vaccinations, not all parents accept vaccines as an effective and safe instrument of public health. Vaccine hesitancy has become a widespread problem in combating infectious diseases, and that reflects a variety of concerns, attitudes, or beliefs on a broad spectrum of non-medical reasons. And I tried to group these reasons into three categories because they are, in my opinion, best reflected then in the relevant provisions of the ECHR. So first of all, vaccine hesitancy may be epistemic in nature. 
that might often be legitimately based on the principle of precaution when there is no scientific certainty yet in brackets, but sometimes also to misconceptions, misinformation, which then means that parents either underestimate the danger of infectious diseases or fearing for the life of their child overestimate the risks of vaccines, such as the long debunked claim that they cause autism or that giving a child more than one, one vaccine could overwhelm the immune system. And these assumptions can then sometimes result in parents believing that natural immunity is better than vaccine-acquired immunity, or that all natural lives for their children are healthier than medical treatments. But this hesitancy occasionally also has parents withdrawing into anti-paternalistic, anti-authoritarian communities, and that can sometimes be understood as based on grounds of second personal autonomy, according to which the parent's judgment is guided by their own conceptions of a good uh, family life and their own appraisal of the situation. And lastly, that can also be closely connected to other non-medical reasons to reject vaccination, such as, as a third point, religious beliefs, other personal beliefs, conscience, other philosophical convictions, and so on. Um, something I want to clarify as well, because that's also one, something one of the reviewers from the paper said is, I do not want to, to lump these categories into one group of super hesitant um, vaccine refusers. I understand these three categories just as a heuristic device, not a strict apology, because as I already said, I think that will help us try to, to capture what that means in terms of the ECHR, because as you will see later on, that is reflected in Article 2, a right to, the right to life, Article 8, personal autonomy, autonomy right to privacy, and Article 9, uh, right to religion, beliefs, uh, thoughts, and conscience. My main point is that if states introduce compulsory vaccination schemes in order to deal with this, these gaps in public health opened by vaccine hesitancy, we have to deal with a plethora of human rights questions, especially these three provisions. But how should we weigh then the rights of those who do not wish to be vaccinated and those who cannot be vaccinated for medical reasons, but would like to be vaccinated because they are the most vulnerable to contagious diseases? And in my opinion, um, I think that every state must protect its most vulnerable members, especially those that cannot be vaccinated for medical reasons, and that this legitimate ground should be considered and weighed against other non-medical reasons not to vaccinate. And this is nothing else than a test of proportionality, stricto sensu, as a doctrinal instrument of the ECHR, that needs to be carried out in order to determine the benefits versus certain harms caused by vaccinations. And you will see that there are two questions at the center of this paper. First, is there a negative human rights obligation of the state to refrain from imposing compulsory vaccination laws in order not to interfere with the lives, the personal autonomy and thoughts, conscience and beliefs of individuals? And or second, is there perhaps a positive legal obligation on the state to impose compulsory vaccination laws in order to prevent the outbreak of infectious diseases and to protect the lives and health of its, of its residents, in particular the most vulnerable? And with the protecting the lives of these most vulnerable persons, the state would also protect their personal autonomy. Um, 
this judgment Vavrichka, um, had been submitted long before the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic. And it is more about, or it is about, it's not about COVID-19. This judgment is about um, vaccines against measles. So it dates back to 2013, but um, quite a coincidence, it was decided earlier this year um, with the pandemic still going on. So I will try now on the base on the basis of this judgment, I will try to examine whether such compulsory vaccination laws are justifiable or not in the light of these epistemic personal autonomy or religion or conscience-based reasons to refuse vaccinations. So let me start now after this introduction with the main part of my presentation. In some jurisdictions, uh, for example, Australia, France, Italy, or certain US states, compulsory vaccination laws have been passed in order to protect individuals and society as a whole um, against outbreaks of certain infectious diseases. That could be based on the imposition of financial fines, excluding children from attending daycare, preschool, or even school, or even mandating the initiation of criminal proceedings against such parents uh, in the case of non-compliance. And similarly, as we will see in, in Vrabrichka versus the Czech Republic, the state also requires all permanent residents to undergo a set of routine vaccinations, which are prerequisite uh, for children to be accepted in preschool facilities. The cost of vaccination in this case is covered by public health insurance and possible malpractice or health damages, possible health damages are covered by a general law of tort that provides for compensation. Under Czech law, failing to comply with these obligations results in a minor offense punishable by upper fine to approximately 400 euros. That would be, if I'm not mistaken, 380 pounds, if I'm not mistaken, approximately. So it's, it's not a lot of money, but still uh, a considerable amount. Um, so the question now is returning to this distinction between negative rights and positive rights. So the question is then, if we see the introduction of a compulsory vaccination scheme as a violation of fundamental rights as negative rights, that means that legally compulsory vaccination has been enacted and is now being challenged because it's violation of the ECHR. If we see that is compulsory, the non-implementation of compulsory vaccination rules as a violation of positive rights. That means that no legally compulsory vaccination scheme exists and its absence is being challenged under the ECHR. And these two scenarios, I will look into these uh, two scenarios now on the basis of these three provisions, Article 2, 8, and 9 of the ECHR. To begin with, it is, of course, only natural to look into Article 2 ECHR, the right to life as a shield against any vaccine-related dangers. The risk of death involved in being vaccinated is not high. Again, we, we, at least I accept for the purposes of this paper and the presentation the premise that vaccinations are generally safe. But of course, we should nonetheless accept that vaccinations do not offer absolute protection and that extremely rare side effects can never be ruled out. So let's try to see how that could work as a negative right. So whilst vaccinations undoubtedly interfere with a person's bodily integrity, they do not automatically affect the right to life. 
The right enshrined in Article 2 provides protect, protection against deprivation of life, but an intervention, such as a vaccination, does not in itself amount to such a prohibited interference, especially, again, under the general assumption that vaccines are effective and safe. And that means, vice versa, that this right can only be potentially affected if vaccination results in a life-threatening situation. That could be the case in the case of allergies, intolerance, or other medical contraindications of the person concerned. Possible, ex possible expectable side effects, for example, reactogenicity, which means reactions to the vaccine by the individual's immune system, do not constitute a serious risk and are therefore not covered by Article 2. But vaccine-associated deaths are clearly caught by the scope of Article 2, because it is the principal goal of vaccination to protect health and life. States will only be held responsible for any related fatalities as an unintentional deprivation of life if they have not taken, in the words of the Strasbourg Court, the appropriate steps to safeguard life. So how can a proof of such, such steps to safeguard life be produced? That could happen through a proper system of control and supervision of the vaccination scheme. And even then, if a small number of unforeseeable fatalities occur, they do not cross the threshold of Article 2. The state's obligation is therefore of a procedural nature. Namely, it has to take the necessary precautions before vaccination it has to monitor the safety of vaccines in use. It has to check or it has to implement regulations for doctors to check each individual case for possible contraindications and allowing for medically indicated exceptions for the duty to vaccinate. Which means then, in conclusion, that introducing a legally compulsory vaccination scheme in compliance with these requirements would not be in violation of Article 2. That is my first, my first uh, finding. Let's, now, let's have a look at Article 2 as a positive right. The reverse side, the state's obligation not to refrain from legal action, but to actively protect the lives of individuals under its jurisdiction by taking appropriate measures against infectious diseases. That means that the state has to do, again, in the words of the ECTHR, all that could have been required of it to prevent individuals' lives from being avoidably put at risk, quote end. Now, keep in mind the crucial word avoidably used here, and I will return to that in a couple of minutes. In the meantime, of course, we have to note that the state must, of course, have known or ought to have known of that risk on the basis of the information available at the time in order to be able to implement any legal measures. And if that is the case, it falls to the state to use that information for the protection of its population by implementing relevant measures, as well as um, to ensure the effective functioning of that regulatory framework I mentioned before, through relevant supervision, enforcement mechanisms, uh, regulations compelling doctors and hospitals to adopt appropriate protective measures for their patients, and so on, and so on. A state can accordingly not be held responsible before the Strasbourg Court if all these necessary measures were taken, appropriate regulations had been in place, and effective investigations were conducted in the case of fatalities. 
But of course, the exact choice of these measures, that is within the state's margin of appreciation, and different avenues can lead to the protection of convention rights through positive obligations. Now, the question arises whether Article 2 can obligate the state to implement compulsory vaccination schemes as a positive obligation in order to protect the most vulnerable individuals under its jurisdiction. And I always mean by that those that cannot be vaccinated for medical reasons. Because if the state is under the responsibility to protect all life against public health threats, which should also include the activity to contain or stop the uncontrolled spread of infectious diseases, then we could argue, as the German representatives in the Wabitschke case did, that the state is under a positive obligation to protect public health in general and, quote, above all the health of those who cannot be vaccinated, quote, end. And the German representatives also argued that vaccination has been widely accepted by the population and that reasons for parents not to have their children vaccinated were mostly due to convenience and carelessness. In such cases, they continue, could be easily addressed by a legal compulsory vaccination scheme, which, again, a quote, constitutes no major interference with individual rights, but merely a small individual sacrifice, quote, end, that can be expected from every medically vaccinable person. Unfortunately, the court did not um, pick up on that argument. It was not further discussed in the case. But if that had been the case, I would claim that it would be consistent with Strasbourg's past case law. And as the court itself put it, the state is required to prevent lives from being put at risk, and here I return to this word again, avoidably. And what would be more avoidable than any death that could have been prevented by being vaccinated? We should nonetheless take note that infections with a disease can generally not be qualified as a direct threat to life within the meaning of the convention, which also means that Article 2 only covers situations in which a life-threatening factor um, is also present. That can be the case, for example, when people belonging to a high-risk group who cannot be immunized by vaccination for medical reasons uh, because they do not have a fully working immune system. So how can their lives then be protected as a positive obligation of the state? So once states know of the existence of infectious diseases, any failure to act against them in order to save lives at risk uh, qualifies as an interference with the right to life as a positive obligation. And again, the convention does not prescribe which exact measures states need to take in this case. They have a considerable margin of appreciation. So any measures to protect the population, that can consist of compulsory or voluntary vaccination plans, but the absence of an obligation to introduce compulsory vaccination does not constitute a prohibition to introduce such, such a strict measure. Uh, one could think of situations in which only compulsory vaccination could successfully discharge the state's positive obligation to protect life. For example, if already established vaccination plans, voluntary vaccination plans prove inadequate to protect vulnerable groups and herd immunity cannot be achieved or maintained. But that of course should Compulsory vaccination schemes should nonetheless always be taken as a last resort and only once all other measures have failed to conform to this moral principle, we could say, but it is also a legal principle, 
of the least restrictive alternative in public health, which states that public health authorities should, when choosing between all available policies for achieving the specific health goal, select that policy that interferes the least with individual rights. So I would like to conclude this part on Article 2, that introducing a legally compulsory vaccination scheme is not necessarily required for a state to comply with its positive obligations under Article 2, because it could fulfill these obligations otherwise, but it is also not prohibited and may become necessary in specific situations. Now let me continue with Article 8, protecting the right to to respect uh, private and family life. That is the next natural candidate to consider, it, to consider when we are talking about personal autonomy, personal choice to vaccinate or not to vaccinate. And especially when it comes to the decision of parents whether to vaccinate one's children's children or not. So the central question is, what are the limits of this autonomy? And whether this right under Article 8 is potentially interfered with or even violated when certain measures, such as compulsive vaccination, touch upon this special relationship between parents and children, and then especially when it precludes children from attending uh, certain uh, educational institutions, preschools, kindergartens, and schools. Let me start again, according to the same structure with Article 8 as a negative right. Article 8 as a right to private life protects the individual's right to exercise control and take decisions over their own body, including decisions concerning medical treatment, because any imposition of such treatment without consent, even if it is of minor importance or intensity, constitutes an interference with the right to private life. And that means, that compulsory vaccination carried out regardless of the concerned person's consent or not necessarily constitutes an interference with the right to privacy. And in Wawrichka, the court discusses this issue within the setting of the duty to be vaccinated and the consequences attached to that decision. So, for example, the fines to be paid or the exclusion of children from preschool education. And it emphasizes that these two things cannot be dissociated from each other. That means that even if no compulsory vaccination had actually been administered against the person's will, the direct negative consequences resulting from this decision of non-compliance also represent an interference with the right to respect private life. And that is definitely the case for children being excluded from attending kindergarten or preschool, given the importance of being part of same-aged social groups in a child's developments and individuals developing personal relationships with the outside world through work, which then also applies to um, adult um, human beings, not just children. But the court also emphasized that childhood vaccination as a fundamental aspect of contemporary public health policy, quote, does not in itself raise sensitive moral or ethical issues, called end. This term of race, we know, stands as a trope to indicate not only that no wide margin of appreciation is granted here, but also that the court appears to consider vaccinations to be generally safe and beneficial to human health from a scientific viewpoint. But making vaccination a matter of legal duty, not as a moral duty, can certainly be regarded as raising such sensitive moral and ethical issues, 
which then in turn widen the state's margin again, emphasizing that this very sensitivity is not exclusive to those refusing to vaccinate. On the contrary, this margin would then also, or the state's margin would then also refer or encompass those most vulnerable to certain diseases should be protected through an act, as the court itself says, an act of social solidarity by the rest of society by assuming the minimum risk in the form of vaccination. And this is exactly the point where autonomy, personal autonomy becomes relevant. The court accepted the exclusion of the applicants from preschool as a loss of an important opportunity for these children, but concurrently underlined that this was the direct consequence of the autonomous choice made by their parents not to comply with the legal duty to vaccinate. And the purpose of that legal duty is to protect the health of all members of society, especially the most vulnerable ones. And interestingly, the court also cites the Council of Europe resolution on fundamental rights and responsibilities that emphasizes that rights and duties cannot be dissociated from one another. And that as a member of society, one not only has rights, but duties as well. And there's an interesting separate opinion that Judge Lemons, and he says that, quote, individuals do not live in isolation, quote them. And as members of society, I'm paraphrasing the rest, we are required to respect one another, which is sometimes only made possible by placing proportionate restrictions on individual freedom. Let me now turn to the notion of family life under Article in this context. That was not separately discussed in Brabritschka, and that's why I tried to, to fill these gaps. Um, so the question at hand is whether compulsory vaccination interferes with the special relationship between parent and child in terms of education and upbringing. To explain the argument better, let me start with the obit dictum in a separate opinion by Judge Wojtyszek, and he says, that, quote, small children usually resist vaccination, quote, end. And I strongly disagree with that. Not only is this, I think, uh, without any further indication of a scientific source, a purely anecdotal assumption, but I think that also presents a double non sequitur. Neither does it, does it follow from this statement that vaccinations are harmful, nor does it give parents a legal right to prevent their children from being vaccinated. As a counterargument, imagine a child with cancer, and this tumor can only be, re be removed by surgery, which will cause the patient pain for a couple of weeks afterwards, but which would eventually cure them. And I cannot believe, again, that is a personal statement, that any parent would in this case also rely on a legal right to spare the child pain in the short run and refuse the treatment and the cure in the long run. Parents are not entirely free to make potentially or actually dangerous decisions regarding their children and then rely on the right to family life. Article 8 requires the law to strike a fair balance between the interests of the child and those of the parents, which also means that the best interests of the child, depending on their nature and seriousness, may override those of the parents. Parents do not have a right under this provision to make decisions such as withholding crucial vaccinations that would harm the child's health and development. And in fact, the parents, because of the legal custody of the children, they are obligated to make decisions in the best interest of the children and not from refraining from doing them. And 
the best interest, this best interest is to be found in using empirical scientific evidence and balancing the relative risk of harm produced through two incompatible decisions, namely whether to vaccinate or not. And this best interest for children might even be enforced by national courts, as the Strasbourg Court held, against the refusal of the parents if the medical treatment in question helps to prevent the spread of contagious diseases. So the court argued in Barbicka that immunization through a full schedule of vaccinations in the early years of childhood is in the child's best interest, unless, of course, such treatment can, cannot be administered due to medical indications, which then in turn turns the child in, uh, in sorry, then means that the child in question becomes dependent on the protection stemming from herd immunity. And as a conclusion, as an interim conclusion from this follows that whilst neither a decision in favor nor against vaccination does interfere with Article 8, the conclusion that parents have no right under this provision to make possibly detrimental decisions for their children signifies that compulsory vaccination does not interfere with this right either. So if a policy of voluntary vaccination based on personal moral convictions does consequently fail to achieve and maintain herd immunity, states may introduce compulsory vaccination schemes in order to achieve or maintain an appropriate level of protection. But how that would be the next step, the next natural step for us lawyers and international lawyers, how can such an interference um, be justified so that it does not crosses the threshold of interference into a violation of human right. Um, that this issue or this, legal, this, this legally compulsory vaccination scheme has to be in accordance with or prescribed by the law is not a controversial issue. That can be disregarded. But in the next step, in terms of the legitimate aim any measure such as compulsory vaccination must provoke, promote, we can think of any of those listed in Article to eight paragraph two, but of course the protection of health is certainly the most relevant one, both in its individual and societal, uh, societal dimension for herd immunity. And this is also where the legitimate aim of protecting the rights and freedom of others comes into play. The court itself underlines this aspect in Brabrichka that the protection against transmissible infectious diseases quote, refers both to those who receive the vaccinations concern as well as those who cannot be vaccinated and are thus in a state of vulnerable, vulner, vulnerability, quote, end. So only by achieving and maintaining herd immunity can these individuals at risk enjoy their rights and freedoms, which they could not if they had to fear a deadly infection every time they leave their home. So the most complex element of deciding whether the interference complained of can be justified or not remains whether it corresponds to a pressing social need, whether the reasons given by the respondent state to justify it are relevant and sufficient, and whether it is proportionate to the legitimate aim pursued. So what is of utmost importance here, again, is the margin of appreciation left to states with regard to the adequacy of compulsory vaccination. In the Wawelczka case, the court underlined two points. First, that there is a general consensus among the contracting parties that vaccination is one of the most successful medical, medical treatments. 
and that accordingly the highest possible level of vaccination among its population should be achieved. And second, the quote mentions that there is no consensus, in contrast to the first point, over a single vaccination model. We have voluntary schemes in the contracting part parties, partly compulsory or fully compulsory vaccination schemes, and therefore a wide margin of appreciation should be provided. Compulsory vaccinations in the next step can also be considered necessary, according to the court, in order to tackle the decrease in vaccination coverage as a pressing social need, especially in times of rising vaccine hesitancy and during a pandemic or epidemic. And it also held, given the efficacy and the safety of vaccinations, as well as the insufficiency of voluntary vaccination in certain cases, that achieving the highest possible vaccination coverage constituted a relevant and sufficient reason for introducing legally compulsory vaccination. Let me now turn to the last element of justification, which is the proportionality test, a test of proportionality strict to sensu, wherein the court focuses on the interests harmed and the interests served by compulsory vaccination to strike a fair balance. So proportionality definitely represents a key element in this discussion, or the key element in this discussion. In this case, then, this test would then weigh the individual's personal integrity against the public interest in protecting their health, as well as taking into account the details of the vaccination program, such as the choice of sanctions, possible exemptions, procedural safeguards, and the availability of compensation for any vaccine-related injuries. If these criteria are fulfilled, the court found in this case, in the Brabacher case, compulsory vaccination schemes cannot be disregarded as disproportionate to require those for whom vaccination is generally safe and only remotely dangerous to accept this universally practiced protective measure as a legal obligation, especially in the name of social solidarity and herd immunity and for the sake of vulnerable people who are unable to benefit from vaccination due to medical indications. The part on the positive right is very brief um, in contrast to the negative right. I found equally or similarly to, to Article 2 that there is no obligation to introduce compulsory vaccination schemes under Article 8. States, again, must certainly provide for relevant measures to eradicate or prevent the spread of infectious diseases. But again, since there is a wide margin of appreciation, there are no material specifications as to what exactly they ought to do. Merely, there are merely formal requirements. Again, such, to guarantee, such as to guarantee families to lead an ordinary and mostly undisturbed life. Parents refusing to comply with their compulsory vaccination duties uh, could therefore only be sanctioned with the withdrawal of custody as a last resort. But that is the most drastic instrument the state has at its um, um, at disposition, and that should not be used lightly. What is more, the right to respect for family life can only be safeguarded if states consider the specificities of each individual case, do not simply apply the law in a mechanical manner, and sufficiently involve the individuals concerned in the decision-making process, providing them with information on the vaccine, as well as its benefits and risks. 
So again, in conclusion, there is no positive obligation for states to introduce compulsory vaccination schemes under Article 8. However, there is also no prohibition of doing so. Let me now um, continue with the last part on Article 9 before I conclude. So the last example is Article 9 of the ECHR, which protects the freedom of thought and conscience, as well as the freedom of religion and other beliefs. Conscientious objection to vaccination can be based on, on a variety of reasons. That could be the ingredients of vaccines that are considered unacceptable for some religions. There's uh, poor sign gelatine or fetal stem cells or certain worldviews that, for example, vegetarians or vegans cannot accept animal components in vaccines or the incompatibility of vaccines in general with a specific facet of a religion or belief. But the question remains what thought, conscience, religion, other beliefs mean in this context and whether they constitute human rights protected under the convention, protected against any compulsory vaccination schemes. Thought is very easy to deal with. That protects everyone from the indoctrination by the state in the shape of compulsory education, which means nobody can be uh, or would be prevented or prohibited from having negative thoughts or convictions toward vaccinations. That is not possible, of course. Nor, but that is perhaps more important, would the disclosure of one's vaccination status necessarily result in an exploration of one's thoughts regarding vaccines. The right to freedom of thought cannot be interfered with in this respect, let alone be violated by relevant vaccination measures. That is unproblematic. Conscience, conversely, goes beyond that. That seems to be much closer to religion or certain philosophical convictions. Um, it enjoins a person to contemplate what is good or bad, to act accordingly, but nobody can be forced by the state to disclose matters of conscience as part of their forum internal. Compulsory vaccination can therefore not interfere with the freedom of conscience in this form, but it could do so once someone's conscience manifests in the decision not to vaccinate as a conscientious decision, because then this conscience enters the forum externum and has an impact on society. So because if a person decides not to vaccinate because of their conscience, then the legally compulsory order to vaccinate certainly interferes with the right to act in accordance with one's conscience. However, with the notable exception of the right to conscientious objection to compulsory military service, which would lead to a serious and unresolvable uh, conflict of conscience, the court does not accept a right to refuse on the basis of one's conscience or convictions or to abide by the law, as long as it applies neutrally and generally. Am I running out of time? Or do I still have a couple of minutes? You can go ahead, Paul. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'm almost done. Um, so a legally compulsory vaccination scheme that can be qualified as generally and neutrally phrased would not interfere with the freedom of conscience under the convention. And that is also the result Strasbourg reached in Bravochka, when it recalled that the freedom of conscience does not always guarantee the right to behave in a public manner dictated by personal conscience. So even though vaccine hesitancy in itself is not a religion, vaccines or ingredients, as I mentioned before, may clash with particular religious doctrines or worldviews. 
The refusal to vaccinate could be regarded as a practice or right under the protection of religion, but not every religious practice or right is protected under this provision. In particular, if these acts are not essential to the expression of a religion or belief, or if a belief is insincere, or if the obligation to vaccinate applies to everyone, regardless of their religion or personal beliefs. The court also distinguishes very carefully here between medical treatments solely affecting the individual, which can always be refused, even if it leads to a fatal outcome. Just think about uh, blood transfusions, and there is a case regarding Jehovah's Witnesses that was decided by the court. That is one thing. On the other hand, we have to distinguish then also medical treatment needed to protect others, such as vaccines against transmissible infectious diseases, for which the general interest of compulsory vaccination overrides the individual's freedom of religion, especially during an epidemic. So should the court be unable to ascertain and grant a religious status, then individuals could potentially also rely on the freedom of belief if the requirements for this notion are met. A belief is protected by Article 9 if it is sufficiently cogent, serious, cohesive, and important, which would apply to veganism, but not to the personal belief that vaccinations only benefit pharmaceutical companies. So interestingly, the court found the complaint under Article 9 in Barbicka inadmissible, and it cited the applicant's lack of consistency in terms of his belief and his objection to vaccination, which was primarily health-related and not based on any philosophical or religious aspects. Regarding the justifications, I will not go into that uh, separately um, because the same analysis as for Article 8 applies. And since um, I would like to conclude now with a very short conclusion, I think um, that would be in the interest of the subsequent discussion. So let me conclude now, again, based on this overall assumption, the scientific consensus that vaccinations are both safe and effective, and that under these requirements, if these requirements are mentioned are met, compulsory vaccination schemes are legally permissible. And it has become clear now, especially under the ECHR, that none of the pertinent provisions, right to life, the right to respect private and family life, and the right to respect freedom of thought, conscience, religion, none of them prohibit, in principle, the introduction of compulsory vaccination schemes. Of course, less restrictive, less, less restrictive measures should always be sought in the first place. But even though uh, compulsory vaccination schemes can be considered to interfere with these human rights, they can be justified and do not constitute violations of these rights as negative rights, which conversely means states are not obligated under the convention to implement compulsory vaccination schemes to protect positive rights of individuals as, lo as long as they protect the public health in other ways. Thank you very much for your attention and I look very much forward to the discussion. Thank you.